Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel, and today we're speaking with Jim McCloskey, who was our guest last week. Please tune in to our earlier podcast so you can hear about the inception of Centurion Ministries, which we will be talking about in just a few minutes, and the reason that Jim decided to create this organization which helps people who are wrongly accused of crimes they did not commit and people who end up behind bars. Today, we are continuing our discussion about Centurion Ministries and a sampling of some of the many cases, too many to cover them all, that the organization has taken on. And we will have uh, Jim give you the website um, and a way to contact them if you so choose. Just to enlighten people, Jim, how many requests do you get um, at Centurion Ministries in a year, and where where do the requests come from? Well, I'm wondering, do we want to first establish how Centurion was even set up initially, or yes, if you're happy, sure, if you wanna, sure. I mean, if you want to go there, I could go there. But sure. um, yeah, so we left off in the first podcast where. I committed to do what I take a year off from school and work on behalf of uh, Mr. De Los Santos. So um, a couple, a number of things were accomplished during that year. Um, First of all, I just, I interviewed a couple private investigators. I were not, I did not trust them. Um, They just didn't seem like the right kind of people uh, to do this kind of work. So I, I ended up doing the investigation myself. And uh, the first thing I did, I went up to the crime scene at the time it took place in Newark at nighttime, at the same time of year. And uh, I discovered uh, very easily that the, the, the eyewitness who claims he saw Chiefy and another man flee the scene of the crime after hearing gunshots, because of the darkness and distance, it was impossible for him to have seen what he said he saw. In addition to that, during my investigation, I met him. His name was was Pat, first name Pat. I met Pat and some of his associates, and they they told me that uh, his associates did that um, that Pat admitted to them that he lied, that he made this story up against Chiefy and the other man, whose name was Lamont Harvey, who was who was later cleared because, as it turned out, he was in Oakland, California, when this crime took place. Mm. Uh, but anyway. Uh, Pat decided to give false testimony because he himself was in trouble with his own crimes with the Essex County Prosecutor's Office. And uh, Chiefy and Lamont had robbed him at a drug house a year or two years ago of some $80. So that was his retribution to send Chiefy away for life because of of these factors. Um, So... Then also, I, I was able, I interviewed a number of attorneys and finally uh, found uh, a lawyer, an attorney by the name of Morton Stavis, who was a renowned uh, constitutional lawyer, and criminal defense lawyer out of Hoboken. And he introduced me to Paul Castellero, who became, uh, who he assigned uh, to be chief uh, attorney in, the, uh, in post-conviction. So Paul, it was Paul and I who worked hand-in-hand over the next uh, two years to develop the new evidence. And among other things, we demonstrated that um, 
the jailhouse confession, the career criminal Richard Delasante, um, who's told the jury that Chiefy had confessed to him in detail um, uh, the, the facts of the, the, the commission of the crime. Um, I finally, it took me a year, but Delasante refused to talk to me. Hmm. But through his relatives, through his relatives, he finally agreed to speak with me. So I visited him uh, a year after I began this work, and he told me the whole sordid story about how he was a lifelong informant for the prosecutor's office and how the prosecutor's detective had um, uh, compelled him to offer this to make up this confession story against Chiefy, how the prosecutor himself, the trial prosecutor of Chiefy, had suborned his own perjury. Uh, because Richard was a was a Del Sante was as I said uh, an informant on many different cases prior to Chiefy's case, and a prosecutor, the trial prosecutor knew it. Paul uh, Paul was able to draw up a, 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 a very strong and detailed petition of new evidence to the federal district court, and we got ourselves a hearing. And prior to that hearing, uh, we were, we were able to get. Uh, uh, permission authorization from the trial judge from the judge for complete access to the prosecutor's file in that prosecutor's file in the prosecutor's own handwriting now this is in this is in 1983 it is eight or nine years after the conviction uh, when Richard Delasante testified at trial that he never informed that anybody else he was never informant he had no informant history mm. um, we found in the prosecutor's own pretrial handwriting, Delasante in habit of giving testimony. Oh. So he knew, he knew that his witness was lying when he had him testify that he never informed anybody or gave any testimony against anybody else. So as a result of this, um, we, uh, the hearing was conducted in March of 83. And on July 5th or 6th of that year, Federal District Judge Frederick Lacey issued his opinion. And in that opinion, he granted uh, uh, Mr. De Los Santos a new trial, saying that the witnesses against them were reprehensible in character and had clearly perjured themselves with the knowledge of the prosecutor. Mm. And, and with that, Mr. De Los Santos was freed and exonerated in July of 1983. By that time, mm. I, I uh, finished my year of working full-time on his behalf, returned to the seminary to finish my degree while continuing to work on his behalf, had met two other New Jersey lifers in whose innocence I had come to believe, graduated from the seminary. So now we're in July of 83, and we free Chief De Los Santos and bring him home to his devoted wife, Elena, mm -hmm. who also, also who would visit him to two times a week for throughout all those years. Um, and it was a, it was a great feeling to, to free him and bring him home. And how, how many years did he actually serve? He actually served uh, eight, eight years eight for that years. murder out of a life sentence. Yes. Yeah. Oh, was he fortunate to have found you and, and the, the um, two others that, that was a question I was going to ask you is how, yeah. how did you connect with after Chiefy was free, then then what? Yeah. And you you already had oh, yeah. had a lineup, a short lineup, right? <laughs> well, that's right. 
Uh, okay, so uh, Chief he's freed and exonerated. Right. Uh, I, I, by that time, I've met two other New Jersey lifers, innocents I've come to believe. Um, and uh, I graduate from the sub. Now I have a choice. Now it's the third fork in the road. <laughs> All right. Am I going to go on and somehow continue this work and do this work on behalf of these two men and whose innocence I've come to believe? Or am I going to go on as I originally intended and get ordained to become a church, a Presbyterian church pastor? Well, obviously, I chose the former. And so um, a couple things occurred that uh, were signs again to me. Um, and that by that by the time Chiefy was freed, I was dead broke, had no money. Um, but my parents came into an extraordinary uh, gift, of, and they gave each of their three kids a ten thousand dollar tax free gift. Mm-hmm. I looked at that as a sign from God and as manna from heaven <laughs> that I'm going to use this ten thousand dollars as capital to to start up a new nonprofit organization. I'm going to call Centurion Ministries. And I, I named it Centurion after the Centurion at the foot of the cross in the Gospel of Luke, who looks up at the crucified Christ and said, surely this one was innocent. That's where the name came from. Mm-hmm. And I attacked on ministries because I felt it was my own particular ministry. Now, at that time, Harriet, I'm living in a, and I had been since I took that year's uh, leave of absence from the seminary. I'm living in a, in, a, in a home in Princeton, uh, owned and occupied by a, a, a septuagenarian, Mrs. Yateman, who was 80, 81 years old, the delightful woman. And her, my bedroom was rent-free in exchange for me doing, helping her around the house and doing errands. Um, in addition, that was Centurion's headquarters for the first six or seven years of doing this work until uh, 1987. So I set up Centurion, named it as I have described, with the $10,000, and felt that this was my call to, this was my ministry, this was my work. I believe, still do, that all the ups and downs of my personal life and professional life and spiritual life, everything had prepared me for this destiny that the Lord had, had set me aside for. He knew my peculiarities, my personality, mm-hmm. uh, my nature, and this is the work that I want you to do. So I felt, I felt that this was my life's calling. This was, uh, this was what I was appointed to do, and I set about to do it. All right. So now um, you've, you've set up the organization, um, and it was ju- who... Who was part of that early, um, those early days of Centurion Ministries besides Paul, whom you've already mentioned? Yeah, now Paul wasn't—he wasn't an employee, but he was oh. an—he was a, an outside attorney I who see. I retained to work on these cases. Okay. And he practically worked these cases pro bono, although I did raise some money to pay him. But he had his own solo practice in Hoboken, New Jersey. I see. And when I when I started these other cases, one Nate Walker in particular was one of the two. Uh, Paul, I, I asked Paul if he would become Nate's lawyer as well as he was Chiefy's lawyer. He he agreed to do that. So I was able to raise some money for him, but not nearly what he 
would he deserve to be remunerated with? Um, so from when I set up Centurion in 83 until Paul and I freed the next person, Nate Walker, in, um, in the November of 86, I was working alone uh, out of the Mrs. Yateman's house. Then Paul and I, <clears throat> we were able to free Mr. Walker. Now, Mr. Walker was, had been convicted and sentenced to life plus 50 years consecutive oh. for a sexual assault and kidnapping of a woman in, uh, in Elizabeth, excuse me, in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Well, what, this is pre-DNA now. What this Paul and I did, we, we convinced the Union County, uh, uh, one, of the, one of the prosecutors, a leading uh, executive prosecutor in the Union County office that's up in Elizabeth, to look for the vaginal swab that was taken from the victim 11 years earlier. Mm. Because we knew that it had semen on it, at least it was described as having the, the, the rapist semen on it. His name was Richard Rodbart. Now, Rodbart, he was in charge of all the, uh, all the uh, uh, attorneys, uh, felony attorneys in that office. But he was Nate Walker's trial prosecutor. I give him all the credit in the world. Now, there were some spirited conversations between Paul and me and Mr. Rodbart about Nate Walker's innocence. But he finally agreed. All right, I'm going to look for that vaginal swab and we'll get it tested. He did. He found it and sent it down the FBI serology lab. And they came back and said that the, the, the donor of the semen on the vaginal swab, namely the rapist, he had blood type A, and Nate had blood type B. So Nate Walker, through blood typing of biological fluid, was exonerated, cleared, and freed. Uh-huh. That was a big story in the U.S. Yeah. at that time. Uh, but, but, very, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, you can Jim. Well, I just want to say, uh, we freed Nate in, in, in early November of 1986. So that's what, that's 34 years, 34 mm. years ago. Um, and uh, it was a big story. I mean, New York Times and mm. People Magazine and TV, the, they and I were on the Today Show. Oh, in my those goodness. days, wow. in those days, when somebody, when an when a innocent person had been exonerated, that was a, that, that was big a big story. Nowadays, nowadays it's not so big because it happens so often. That's right. There are so right. many of them. But um, I, I, I was but, thinking, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. I was thinking about yeah, the no, whole I, thing with the rape kit. It was so much more difficult then because there wasn't DNA and it, it rested just on blood type, right? That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Now, one, one other thing about that rape kit, that vaginal mm-hmm. swab, yeah. which was in like a test tube thing, um, that Rodbart, Prosecutor Rodbart, Found that in the uh, in the uh, Elizabeth Police Department's uh, old evidence building, which was going to be destroyed a month later. Had we come by and had he looked for that swab two months later, it would have been destroyed. So oh. the, the stars aligned nicely for Mr. Walker, although he spent 11 years in prison for something he didn't do. But thank God we were able to, to get that done. So um, 
with that, with his um, exoneration and all the publicity that came with it, several things happened. Number one, it gave little old one-man band, Centurion Ministries, some recognition and some credibility. I 60 see. Minutes came. 60 Minutes now wants to do a story on, well, as it turned out, on me, because I, I was operating alone at that time. But most importantly, Kate Germain, she had just moved to New York City from her, uh, with her husband from California. She read the article about Nate's case in the New York Times, and she tried and tried and tried to contact me, as were a number of other people, because at that time, I was the only one who systematically and, and organizationally were, waiting, were working on behalf of innocent people in prison in the United States. So um, anyway, Kate finally got through to me. We met in New York, and, and there was just something about her that I said that she looks like she's be perfect for this, and by God, she is. She has been with me ever since January of 87 when she first began to to work for Centurion with me. That's, uh, and she was so instrumental and as a partner and colleague in helping me to, to grow and develop Centurion and, and have it become the organization that it, it has been and has developed into today. That is remarkable. What a long connection and relationship you have had with, with Kate. And I interviewed her my very first podcast uh, about a year ago. And uh, so you're kind of coming full circle. That's that's a great, uh, okay. just, what a great story. Yeah, I, what a great I story. I had forgotten that, yeah. Yeah, one that's other right. Thing about, one other thing about that is that, you know, I was still on a, on a shoestring budget by the time we freed Nate Walker. Yeah. I mean, I almost ran out of, out of money and got a job as a waiter in downtown Princeton a year before. <laughs> but, but... Um, as a result of that and the publicity that it garnered and the credibility it gave our work, mm -hmm. uh, foundations started to come our way. And um, I start for the first time, I started to receive grants from uh, several different foundations in, in Washington and New York City, which helped us, uh, help with the, with the financing of, of the uh, fledging organization. Did, did you wonder as you created Centurion how you were going to manage financially? Well, I, I did wonder. <laughs> <laughs> I did wonder that. And, um, but, you know, first of all, I, I had a pretty low overhead, I have to say, right? Oh, right. I'm living rent-free yep. in a nice home in Princeton. That's, a, that's My bedroom was Centurion's headquarters. I'm only working New Jersey cases. When I came up to the seminary, one thing I, I had, I couldn't get rid of because I loved that car. I had a Lincoln, a 1976 Lincoln Town Car, beautiful boat of a car. I loved that car, but finally I realized I got to sell that darn thing. It's getting it's getting seven miles a gallon. I'm a, <laughs> you know, I'm driving all over New Jersey working on behalf of Chiefy and Nate Walker and and a, a couple other folks uh, as well. So anyway, I sold that car for for a, uh, a little Volkswagen rabbit. Um, oh, yes. So I keeping the overhead down, but still it, it, it takes money. I, you know, I had to raise some money for Paul. He, he's got a he's raising a family at that time as well. Uh, not as well, but he was raising a family. I was single. So um, 
you know, as a single person, uh, again, I'm able to keep the, 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 the expenses down. And one thing led to another. And then we start getting these grants from foundations and uh, various individuals find out about the work that we're doing because of the publicity, which gave us credibility. And one thing leads to another. And slowly but slowly but surely, uh, we were able to achieve some kind of a financial foundation and a financial footing um, to do this work. That's right. So you mentioned that you were driving all over New Jersey, but now you take cases from all over the country. What What a difference from the narrow focus at the beginning, right? Exactly. Now, let me, if I could, let me take a minute to tell you how that happened. Sure. It wasn't any great, uh, Harriet, it was not any great vision by me or imagine, imagination. In other words, I didn't say to myself, oh, boy, I want to make this a national organization and free mm-hmm. people all over the country. That was my, that's going to be my vision and my goal. That wasn't it at all. Mm-hmm. I just took it case by case, kept my head down. And one, two, three, four, New Jersey lifers are freed. When Nate and I, in November of 86, were on the Today Show with Bryant Gumbel, and we got the 710 slot, which was the, the main slot. Um, next thing I know now, that's, that's in addition to People Magazine, did a, a beautiful spread on me. Um, as a result of that, requests are coming in from all over the country. Now, this is right before Kate joined me, um, and poor Mrs. Yateman, you know, she's 82 years old, and the next thing she knows, letters are coming in from practically every state prison in the country asking for help. <laughs> oh, that poor woman. Oh, she anyway, needs a truck to bring um, the mail in. <laughs> practically, that's practically right. She was, she was nervous as hell. But anyway... Um, Anyway, uh, but one, so we're on the Today Show. That resulted in, I get a telephone call from a, a man by the name of, of Ozell Brantley. Now, now I'm talking about the first non-New Jersey case. Oh. He's in Houston, Texas. His brother, Clarence, is about ready to be, is going to be executed on March 26, 1987. That's four months down the road. Mm-hmm. And that got my attention. Holy jeez, a, a capital. I've never done a capital case. I've never been to the state of Texas before in any capacity. But nevertheless, uh, now Kate joins me, and she's starting to organize all these letters and petitions for help that are coming in by state. And, and um, she starts communicating with, with, uh, with these folks and developing a file on some of the, some of the seemingly more important cases but this is the case that got our attention because he's good. He's going to be executed. Yeah. He's exhausted all his appeals. That led me. So now I'm just, we're going where the current takes us. The current, it's like a fast moving river. The river took me uh, and Kate, although she was organizing things from, from Princeton, it took me to, um, to Conroe, Texas and Houston, Texas to offer my services to uh, to uh, Clarence Branley's attorneys, who were Houston based, and um, uh, eventually, uh, now, now so that so now sixty minutes, they were going to do a story on me. 
So I go down to Texas as an individual. Uh, so I go down to Texas. Now I'm working on the Clarence Fraley case where we are, Harriet, we are two, we are March 17th, which is St. Patty's Day, 26. We're nine days away from his execution date. And that's when we were able to bring the, one of the state's star witnesses against Clarence at his trial 10 years earlier. He came forward and recanted his trial testimony mm. and he was an eyewitness to the crime. He, he identified the two men who actually did this as he stood by and let the victim go to her death. What happened, very, very briefly, what happened there was in the, right before, before school was to start in Conroe, Texas, which is 50 miles north of Houston, a large high school, a visiting volleyball uh, tournament, girls volleyball tournament was held at Conroe High. And uh, Cheryl Ferguson, the volleyball manager of a visiting team, went to the uh, went around the high school looking for a restroom. She finally stumbles upon three janitors who are there waiting to be reassigned to another part of the high school by their supervisor, the African American Clarence Branley. The other janitors were white. And uh, as it turned out. As, as the recanning witness told us nine days before the execution, when he recanted and told us the whole, his whole eyewitness account, two of the janitors grabbed her, took, forced her into the, into the restroom. She's yelling for help. The star recanning witness, John Sessom, uh, as he told 60 minutes, I guess I had a little bit of the rabbit in me and he went away. He, 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 he didn't go to her aid and he left the scene he right, couldn't yeah. stand hearing her cries for help so anyway they 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 Jim. assaulted and, and killed her yeah all right yeah. what we we want to do is we want to wrap this one this uh segment okay. up and i want you yep. to pick it up um when you come back i hope you will next time so we can hear more about this case this sounds fascinating so okay. thank you, thank right. you, thank you so much. And I hope my listeners will return and hear more of my interview with Jim McCloskey. Thanks for listening. In a noisy, stressful world, quiet is the most valuable commodity. And the cabin of every Lincoln vehicle is designed with this principle in mind. Should you desire a little more melody, our available Revel Audio system will not disappoint. The very same engineering that makes for a whisper-quiet interior provides a studio-like setting in which to rock out to your music, finding harmony all around you. That's the power of sanctuary. And that's Lincoln. Revel and the Revel logo are trademarks of Harman International Industries, registered in the United States and other countries.